welcome to Cover Light Conversations. This is Frances Harry, your host. I have with me today um, Colleen Sollinger. I've invited her back to continue um, with a series. Now, this will be part two of the series of Courage in the Face of Opposition, what the Carmelites can teach us about living counterculturally. She's going to be speaking about the general, and I'll let her say his name because she says it in French much better than me. Um, and so I just want to welcome back Colleen. Hello. How are you? Hi, Francis. I'm so good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. We had a great conversation on this topic of uh, courage in the face of opposition. And um, we didn't go into a lot of the details on the general. And so today, I'm really glad we're going to have this opportunity to help um, people learn more about him because I think uh, we're all having battles in our lives and our society and the culture today. And uh, he being a military man and a Catholic and a Carmelite has much to teach us. Um, before though, before we get going, um, I would like to start with a prayer. And this prayer, I call the prayer of nothingness. He didn't title it, uh, but I call it a prayer of nothingness. Uh, it's by, um, now you say his name for me, Colleen, because you say it better. General Louis Gaston de Sunis, and I'll spell yeah, I that. I love it with your French. <laughs> so I hesitate to say it because you, I don't say it as well. <laughs> I love that. So thank you. Um, actually, um, this is from, I found this prayer um, by the general. That's how I'm going to say it. <laughs> yes. Um, from the letters of St. Therese of Lisieux. Um, in the book General Correspondence, this is volume two of her letters from ICS Publications. It was page 1280 for those of you who have it. Um, this prayer is mentioned in the General Correspondence of St. Therese, which greatly influenced the thought and conduct of certain moments in her life. So it was so important to her that she mentions it. And so then I have to go look it up. Um, and uh, I think they put it in that um, edition. They did, yes. I, I want to share it um, because it's a beautiful prayer. And I think uh, this will help our listeners to understand his interior disposition as we go in and talk about his life. So let us get recollected, be quiet, and let's uh, put our uh, thoughts and concerns aside and let's Let's really focus on God being present within us and with the general and the assistance of St. Therese of Lisieux, let us pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. My God, here I am before you, poor, little, destitute of everything. I am nothing. I have nothing. I can do nothing. I'm here at your feet, plunged into my nothingness. I would like to have something to offer you, but I am only misery. You, you are my all. You are my riches. My God, I thank you for having willed that I be nothing in your presence. I love my humiliation, my nothingness. I thank you for having withdrawn from me certain satisfactions of self-love, certain spiritual consolations. I thank you for disappointments, 
worries, humiliations. I know that I needed them and that these goods could have held me back from you. I love to be broken, consumed, destroyed by you. Reduce me to nothing more and more. May I be in the building, not like the stone worked and polished by the laborer's hand, but like the grain of obscure sand hidden by the dust of the road. My God, I thank you for having allowed me to glimpse the sweetness of your consolations. I thank you for having deprived me of them. All that you do is just and good. I bless you in my poverty. I regret nothing except for not having loved you enough. I desire nothing except that your will may be done. You are my master. I am your possession. Turn me and turn me over again. Destroy me and work me. I want to be reduced to nothing for love of you. Oh, Jesus, how gentle is your hand, even at the height of the trial. May I be crucified, but crucified by you. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So for everyone who has heard this prayer, read this prayer, pondered this prayer, you can tell it's from a very spiritually strong soul. And um, this is a good prayer to to think about, you know, I, I wonder when's the last time, uh, you know, that I thanked God for my nothingness, that I thanked God for the trials, the disappointments and the worries and humiliations and how beautifully um, the general teaches us um, about um, prayer and how to face um, the darkness and the, and the trials. So, all right, well, enough of that. Let's uh, go forward now, Colleen, and, and, and tell us about the general and, and how you learned about him and everything. So give us, give us a greater idea of who he is and what, what he wants to teach us. All right, Louis Gaston de Sinise. I'm gonna spell that D-E de Sinise, S-O-N-I-S, which isn't exactly proper French, but we're, we decided to do that so that people would understand it when we're, you know, when they're listening to it. Um, and, and, and you know, I know his first name is Gaston, and I yeah. remember, well, isn't there a, a Disney movie <laughs> with Gaston? Uh, what was that? Beauty and the Beast. Uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the one with the yellow dress. <laughs> yeah, Beauty and the Beast. He's so uh, Beauty the, and the Beast. There's a Gaston. Gaston is the, this is a good Gaston. This, this is, is a good Gaston. Gaston. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that'll help you remember him too. So <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right. <laughs> um, a uh, Frenchman, obviously, alive between 1825 and 1887. He was a husband, a father, a French military officer, and a secular Carmelite. And before we go more deeply, I would, I'll just briefly mention that his cause for canonization was introduced in 1928. Um, in 1929, his body was discovered to be without corruption. They were going to... Um, bury his wife next to where he in the you know uh, in the crypt next to him and uh it was in there where they went to move his coffin and they could tell things felt very solid <laughs> and so they they opened it up and found that his clothes had deteriorated but not his body now this isn't automatic criteria for sainthood um but there are two stories shared in a um french book published in 2012 that uh 
there are children who are reported to have recovered unexpectedly after near-death illnesses, after people prayed for his intercession. Um, this book also states that testimonies to his intercession um, do continue to arrive at the Bishop of Chartres in France, um, and uh, but nothing more has happened since, well, at least 2012, that uh, has advanced in his cause. There is a prayer for beatification that might be found online. Maybe I can get you the link and we can put it in the show notes or something. Okay. So that okay. find yeah, it. That's a that's a good idea. And um, you know, I think since his life is so applicable to us today that um maybe the Holy Spirit is nudging us to to make him known more so that um we can get his cause finished up. I would love that. canonized. Wouldn't that be great? That would okay, be great. We did that. Mark Danis, who who co-hosted Carmelite Conversations with me um, many years, he and I talked about um, at the time Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity, and he and I both said, "Oh, she's going to be a saint, no doubt about it." And surely it had it did happen in the course yeah. of the next five years. And so um, I'm hoping this is another one um, because the whole world is experiencing. Uh, a, a lot, especially through this pandemic that we're living in and the unrest that we're living in. And so I, I think the general is certainly one that can give us um, a lot to help us and arm us with how to deal with the situations that we're faced with. So I want to know, how did you first learn about the general? Right. My introduction was, um, I, I just came across a, a quote found in the book, God Alone and I, Carmelite Meditations. It's just this small book that's filled with treasures. Um, you know, it'll give a quote from a saint and then there's a colloquy. And then it's just, it's a beautiful, short little book, but, you know, you could take years reading it because it's just one of those suited for meditation. And that was put together by the Carmel Flemington, right? Yes. Yes, it was. Okay. And in there was a quote from him. Um, and that was just a you know I, I I decided to look him up after reading it, um, and I think that the quote is a good introduction to the man. Um, it goes like this: Oh Jesus, I no longer care what people think of me. Truly, I do not understand this pride. I believe that true heroism consists in constant fidelity to the humble and hidden way. I am happy when lost in the rank and file. And when I feel that I am counted as nothing, then only can I walk in a glory that lights the soul without burning it. You know, as you're um, reading that, I'm thinking, okay, he lived before St. Therese, right? Mm -hmm. And so I know she's, she talks about the grain of sand, and that refers to this, the, the quote of, of the general. But here, this, this hidden way. And I'm like, I'm locking in on that. And I'm sure St. Therese must have too. Um, and this counted as nothing. I, it makes me think of St. Mary of Jesus crucified, who liked to be called a little nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, but yes, uh, you know, what, what true heroism was in his mind. You know, he's a military man and, and all the people around him, the true heroism was, you know, going out there and fighting and being champions and everything and he's like uh no true heroism consists in constant fidelity to the humble and hidden way right. Ooh, countercultural right yeah. there 
right, go ahead. His thing was he didn't set out to, I'm going to be a good Catholic. I'm going to be a respected soldier. I want to be a faithful husband or devoted father. His goal was just constant fidelities to the duties put before him. And it was the result of this constant fidelity that people saw the good Catholic, the respected soldier, the faithful husband, the devoted father. Yeah, and that um, constant fidelity, of course, is is to God first. Mm-hmm. Um, he always kept God first. That's the focus of his life. So, and then right. the rest came into place. Mm-hmm. Um, what I yeah yeah what I'd like to do again we're talking about courage in the face of opposition and while I I don't have time like we don't have time and I don't think the listeners want to hear details of French history but I'd like to at least provide a, a brief overview in order to understand the context of the time and situation in which he lived. Oh yeah, that's very important. Okay, set it up for us. All right. So from the time of the 1789 French Revolution and then the establishment of the first French Republic, um, which was 35 years before the birth of Louis Gaston de Sunis, through the end of General Sunis's life, the French government went through many changes. Um, it was Republic. It was Napoleon I's empire. They restored the monarchy. They briefly went back to Republic again. There was another Republic, um, Napoleon III, the second empire, and then to the third Republic, which is at the end of of the general's life and did not end until 1940. Now, these changes certainly impacted Sunis's life as a Catholic. Generally speaking, the republics were anti-clerical. The empires were in conflict with Rome, but Napoleon was friendlier towards the church in France as he realized that it was easier to gain the obedience of the French people if he seemed inclined towards religion. So de Sinise was born during the restoration of the monarchy, when the church would have regained some of its acceptance in political circles, but the buildings were still owned by the government, the salaries of the religious were paid by the government. Um, It's important to know too, his military career was influenced by French colonial expansion into Algeria. And it was about the last two decades of his life that France was ruled by the Third Republic. So during this Third Republic, the church was weakened quite a bit. And in 1879, um, here's an example. In 1879, priests were excluded from hospitals and charity boards. A year later, religious congregations were suppressed. And then over the next decade, they were gradually, the laity was replacing nuns as nurses in hospitals. In 1882, public education was established as both mandatory and secular. So that's setting up the political climate. And and we can relate to that in our political climate because, you know, as Catholics, we defend life from the moment of conception to natural death. And yet, through our government at this time, uh, they're promoting a lot of abortion. And so, of course, uh, that's anti-Catholic. And they're even forcing hospitals that are Catholic, that that were created from Catholics for the service of their neighbor. Um, they're forcing them to go try to go against their Catholic beliefs. And um, so here we need to stand up in the face of opposition, just like the generals did. And um, yeah, this is, you know, you can just replace some of the scenarios with what we're going through today. And, and it's the same story, but with just a, a different facts around it. Yeah, it absolutely can. All right. Well, tell us about his personal life. Um, All right. Now that we have an idea of the setting of the social political climate, right. which always affects us. <laughs> right. All right. He was born actually in the 
French West Indies to a military family. His father was stationed there. His parents were very devout Catholics. Um, they died when he was young. His mom um, died when he was just 10 and his father when he was uh, 19. Um, two of his sisters grew up to be Carmelite sisters. Hmm. Uh, the siblings always remained close and entered into frequent correspondence. And this is a beautiful thing. They would write letters to each other and plan no matter where they were in the world or in France um, to keep vigils at the same time in their respective chapels. And I just find that so beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, his formal education began in his teens at military school. He had considered a religious vocation, but discerned the call to family life in a military career instead. Now, as a student, um, he and other practicing Catholics received the sacraments in secret because the political climate at that particular time was not friendly towards the church. Again, this is why I had to give that quick <laughs> paragraph of uh, overview of, of the political situation. Right. Um, when he was 23 years old, he married his wife, Anise Roger. She was 17. So there was a six year difference. Her parents had wanted them to wait until he was a little bit more financially secure, but his noble career won them over and they trusted that all would be well and gave their permission for the marriage. It's like once they met him, they was like, this is a good one. We can't let him go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, Louis Gaston and Anaïs went on to have 12 children, and it appears that only two of them died during childhood. That's amazing so they had them in those days. Large family. Yeah, it is. So during his career in Algeria, there were often long separations for the family. Quite often, he was able to move with them to his posts in Africa, but um, it was, back in those days, it, it wasn't, you know, not to all the time. So it, French army did not move him or his family around. He always had to pay for it. So that would weigh into their decisions as to where they could move or live together. So they were close and separations were difficult. Um, there are many quotes and anecdotes that exist showing his devotion to his family. Also stories expressing his worries about being able to meet their material needs, but he knew that virtue was more important, um, especially at the end of his career when he was suffering ill health and living in this environment that was increasingly hostile towards Catholics. But he said um, he was willing to live a reduced lifestyle for this. He, he said, I must sacrifice our comfort to my honor as a Christian. Well, you know, as you were talking about his personal life and, and you were talking about his uh, sisters and their plans to keep vigil, I, I couldn't help but remember, um, I think that he made a commitment while he was active in the military to, I think it was Thursday nights to Friday morning, he would commit to an all-night vigil of adoration, what we call nocturnal adoration. And um, I know um, my co-host Mark Danis had mentioned nocturnal adoration and was very uh, impressed by that and uh, inspired by it. And I think, uh, you know, it's something that St. Therese and her family, uh, her father in particular, was in an organization that was uh, very much involved in nocturnal adoration. So I just kind of wanted to put that little tidbit out there because I, I know some people today um, maybe be able to make that happen in your own parishes because the world 
at large is in such need uh, of prayer. So, uh, so we can tell from his personal life that um, where his commitments lie and you know, that, that God was primary and that even in the life of a military man with the separations that um, he didn't like, uh, he didn't put God in a box. Okay, God is for this time, families for this time. And, you know, it, it's like he, he uh, kept them all together. And when they're not able to be together, he was in touch with them, whether it was through letters or, you know, spiritually, of course. A, a very big spiritual connection, which I think is very important. Yeah, I would add there too that let us use that example where that even if we can't go out, but we find ourselves awake in the middle of the night, use that time as your own nocturnal adoration that you can turn that into a fruitful prayer time. It might not feel fruitful to you at the moment, but we know how prayer works and we know that the, the fruit is born somehow. Right. And so you, even if you're not able to go to a chapel, you always have the interior cell of your heart to yes, speak to, to God. So very good. I'm glad you brought that up, Colleen. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's uh, tell us a little bit about the general's professional life. All right. As I mentioned, um, he spent a big chunk of his career in Algeria, which was then French colonial territory. This was between 1854 and 1869. Um, it says there, in a biography on him, it says there he found what existed in no other part of the world for a French soldier, active service and a real soldier's life. Um, it seems that he was untouched by some of the upheavals that were going on back in France, except for that higher ups in the military and political command would change frequently. So he had new bosses all the time. And I suppose then would always have to go through the, you know, feeling them out again. And what were they going to do about the fact that he was a practicing Catholic, that, that sort of a thing. But um, the, he, there was a great deal of respect for the general amongst the native Algerians. Among the examples of things admired by others, um, he took the time to learn Arabic. He was known for his just dealings with the natives and he would not accept bribes when settling affairs. He was generous with beggars. Um, the Algerians were impressed with his horsemanship and military bearing. Um, even though they didn't share a religion with him, his piety rendered him pleasing to God and his deep religious feelings increased their love and admiration for him they recognized him in his you know that even it, you know that, that his he was so impressive that he could impress the people who weren't didn't even share faith faith with him um it was yeah wherever he went it was the principled life he lived that garnered respect um one example is after winning a battle they came upon a large sum of money that was left behind in the tents by of the enemy um, he expressed his intention. Of course, he turned it over to the treasury. That's what you're supposed to do, right? So one of the Arabs fighting with the French expressed his surprise. France does not need this money, which is, after all, your own booty. And with your household expenses, Desonis interrupted him with an energetic, never, after all, what is all this worth? Shall I not one day have to go naked into my grave? Huh. Yeah, so isn't that interesting? Because a lot of people, I mean, you can tell that one individual that said that was tempted to to keep it and yet because of the general's principled life it's like no we've got to honor god and god sees our actions 
even in uh, when you think nobody else around can see you, God sees you and it's important to stay true. So thank you for bringing that example up. Exactly. Um, there was another major event in his military career that happened when he was back in France. This was during the Franco-Prussian War, which was between 1870, um, summer of 1870 and May 1871. During the Battle of Loigny in December 1870, he was severely wounded during a battle in which tr the troops meant to support his own corps retreated. They deserted when they saw how outnumbered they were by the Prussians. It was 300 of the general's troops versus 2,000 of the opposing army. But he entered the battle with a Sacred Heart banner borrowed from the nuns at Paray le Monial. It had been laid on the tomb of St. Mary, St. Margaret Mary, and now he had it. Um, some 213 of the 300 in his battalion died, and only three of the 14 officers survived. He was shot in the thigh and badly injured. Um, in fact, he spent the night on the battlefield lying there in agony um, with his fellow soldiers dying around him. But he um, was two stories. Oh, go ahead. But he was praying during all that yeah. night, right? Yes. Yeah. That there were two stories critical. that emerged from this. Yeah. Um, one Carmelite confessor later told this story that during that night, the Blessed Virgin showed him extraordinary favors and filled him with ineffable consolations. Okay. His crushed limb, the freezing of the other parts, all the horrors of that fearful night and his terrible sufferings disappeared before that presence. He, he wrote, I only began to suffer again when men tried to help me. <sighs> um, and then another miraculous story that occurs from that night um, a letter from one of his sisters who was a Carmelite explained that she had a mystical insight that night that woke her from sleep, compelling her to pray for her brother. She did not know what danger he was in, thinking that it probably had something to do with the health of one of his children, but it ended up she was praying for him and then he had this <laughs> miraculous um, appearance of the Blessed Mother. And I'm sorry, that's a great example for us. When somebody comes to our mind. That's just what I was going to say. Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You tell. No, please. I just, just don't ignore it. <laughs> right. And pray. Pray mm -hmm. for that person right then and there. I, I have experienced this many a time. I'm praying. Uh, somebody's thought, you know, their name and or their image comes to my mind. And so I, I'm just, I know I need to pray for them. And then later on, I learned why and, you know, mm -hmm. how important that was. And I'm hoping people do that for me, too. You know, God works that way. That's the Holy Spirit uh, nudging us. And so answer the call. And here mm -hmm. we have an example in the general's life of how that happened. And, you know, it is amazing to think of, about that, um, the apparition of the um, Blessed Virgin during that time. Now, he doesn't go into detail about, you know, did he did he see her outwardly or inwardly or how that mm -hmm. transpired. But the fact that it happened and, you know, it was so overwhelming that, you know, this agony that he was in, he was not aware of it because he's lost into this uh, time with the Blessed Mother. Um, and no doubt she's encouraging him. Um, how beautiful it is. I, I would really like you know, to know more about that, wouldn't you? <laughs> I would, yes. <laughs> right, so in the end, um, he, the general ended up losing that leg that was so badly injured. 
Um, but from every year on, on the anniversary of the battle, he kept an all-night vid vigil in whatever church he was living close to. I wonder if that was a um, despite he made this, the mother. I, I said Indeed, I, I was yeah. wondering if that was a promise he made the blessed mother. But even if it wasn't, you know, he he would remember this and he would acknowledge it. And you know, you you memorialize things by having you know this anniversary and and doing something special for that. And you know, even in spite of losing this leg, he continued uh, riding his horse and everything, right? He did. He <laughs> rode horseback leg. with a wooden leg is what he did. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Um, so, yeah, he was able to still his duties. He could um, study military regulations and theories as well as inspect troops under his care. He was still able to, um, to work and be an active duty officer. Um, however, what's coming is change in the French government, this third Republic that I mentioned that had, uh, its impact on the lives of Catholics in France. Um, but again, since we're, we're highlighting here, the difficulties he faced as a practicing Catholic. Um, so what I'd like to do is move on to what his professional life was like post-injury and what all these changes meant for him. Okay. Um, those who have uh heard the first part of this will recognize some of these things because we discussed what this was like for him um the president of the third republic was courteous towards him but he still had an agent spy on him because you know who trusts these religious people <laughs> um the general had to fight for sunday observances for his soldiers um which i think was um I want to mention that, yes, he was trying to help those enlisted who had no voice so that they would be able to attend mass. But I also want to point out that he was also, when he had been stationed in Algeria earlier in his career, he was also very sensitive towards the religious needs of um, the Muslims as well. So, you know, he it wasn't just that it wasn't a matter of him just favoring those enlisted people who happened to be Catholic because he was Catholic too. It just served his sense of justice in general to fight for the Sunday observances for these other men who wouldn't have necessarily been able to. Um, that was a time when being called clerical was seen as an insult. And um, yeah, this kind of reminds me of uh, the recently, uh, when Amy Coney Barrett, during her hearing for the Supreme Court Justice, the Senator said that the dogma lives loudly in her, <laughs> and people took that as a real negative, but Catholics are like, yeah, that's good, you know, <laughs> we want the dogma, the dogma to live, what's the dogma, it's the Lord, it's God, it's Jesus. Exactly, and he was the same way, he's like, go ahead, yes, I'm clerical. <laughs> and, and, oh. and I remember there was a Senator at one time, or, or, or some political person who's saying, you should be glad I am because that means I'm treating you with more mercy and justice and, and, and I'm being more truthful because these are principles of my life. I'm like, yes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, the time did come though, when he was forced to choose between career and integrity as a Catholic. Um, the dissolution of religious organizations began in earnest during this third Republic. And it meant the beginning of the end for any men of conscience who were working within the system. Um, De Sinise could not assist in the expulsion of the religious. He wrote, the houses of the Carmelites and Franciscans had been attacked by 200 scoundrels. 
the head of, of whom sword in hand marched an artillery officer. Um, he was outraged too when another general had forbidden his officers to go to mass in uniform. Um, after an incident in which he would have had to force religious from their monasteries, um, he wrote that he could no longer remain at the head of troops liable to have to turn their bayonets against priests and to besiege monasteries. Um, he was just, you know, it was beyond his imagination that his country had come to the part, to the place where it had, you know, that they had come through that reign of terror and here we are again. He wrote, posterity will read with horror and astonishment this account, which is worthy of the worst days of the revolution. Moral sense is so obliterated in France that the execution of these abominable decrees has only found real resistance among the people who alongside some vices have yet great and solid virtues. And I would think that that's so applicable today. We're, we're fighting many battles and I know with a military background, uh, some of the challenges that our servicemen are going through to be able to practice their faith whatever denomination it might be. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it, it, this, those struggles continue. It, it's like, well, of course we know where that comes from, the, the, uh, the spirit of the Antichrist, uh, that, that evil spirit that, that wants to uh, kill the church, kill, kill God, you know? So um, here the general is being very faithful and, and aware, it's not like, you know, some people just close their eyes and they don't want to see this stuff. They don't want to deal with it. And, you know, this is where you can have courage in the opposition. And so he did. And when he had to make the choice, he chose God. So, you know, it's a great example for us. And I mean, so many more details in his life that can teach us. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you were talking about the government. He, he talked about that too. At one point he was expressing exasperation after battle in which France won, but with high costs. Um, he was talking about, here's his quote, a government which has abandoned Rome and inaugurated a statue to Voltaire on the eve of the Assumption, is it not inconceivable? Must draw down the thunders of heaven upon our heads. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Statues to Voltaire, but we're going to turn our back on God. Yeah. Indeed. Um, now, he did continue to have health issues that stump from the lost leg. Um, he had sustained fresh injuries to his good leg, and, but he didn't want to retire because he needed to support his family. Um, so being forced into retirement did cause financial hardships. Um, he accepted help from one friend. He had an offer to rejoin the the well, the army specifically in a way that would be independent of politics, limited to purely military functions. But it was not a very prestigious um, position. Position, yeah. Considering everything that he had done for the French army during his career, um, and what he wrote was such a post implied a territorial command which a republican government could not entrust to me so they have given me work in a ministerial commission where i shall not endanger the republic you know like oh <laughs> right we'll put him in a place where nobody will notice what he's trying to do um doesn't that happen a lot in the military oh well you're you've been 
recognized for doing such and such and so now we're gonna hide you over here you know and many of the bishops you know they were taken from their country and exiled somewhere else because they were doing too much good (laughs) and damaging the the evil forces so (laughs) yeah whenever yeah even if it's a military or amongst the clergy if you start putting politics before integrity that's what ends up happening um, his biographer wrote, Tosones had been forced to give up the noble career which had been his life and to renounce the idea of ever again appearing at the head of his troops. But his humility as a Christian made him accept this obscurity as a hero. God be praised for mixing me more and more with the poor and despised in this world for whom I have always had a great attraction. Is well, that quote reminds me. Uh, that reminds me of Pope Francis, you know, the poor, the destitute. Uh, right. And so here the general is thanking God for this opportunity. Uh, lessons to be learned there, no doubt. Yeah. Um, yes, he still continued. He lived for another four and a half years after his retirement, but um, retired to Paris. One of his concerns, though, was that um, fellow Catholics would follow him out of the army, you know, knowing that it was an untenable situation for this man anymore. So how can the rest of us stay within the system that just doesn't work? But he didn't want that. Um, His quote was that he did not want the army uh, to be deprived of the few Christians who remained among them. Mm -hmm. Um, He had a former chief of staff who wanted to leave, but he wrote to him, uh, wrote about him, do not let him desert the army, but tell him to remain at his post. It is only when a military man is ordered to do something contrary to the law of God that he has the right to answer. Take away my command from me, for I cannot disobey God. Mm-hmm. Um, to another, oh, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry, that very good counsel. Um, something that our, our military men uh, and women could really ponder today. Right. Um, to another young officer, he wrote, As for you, my dear friend, remain at your post. I think that no one ought to abandon it until honor forbids his remaining. This was my case, but it is not yours. Continue the life you have begun so well and in which you have distinguished yourself by your talents and education. And why should I not add by your solid piety? Mm -hmm. Separate your habits from those of a world which has become absolutely pagan. Strengthen yourself, body and soul, at the source of all faith. Believe me that outside the blessed Eucharist, there are only alternatives of courage and weakness, but that real strength is only to be found in the participation of the faithful with Jesus Christ himself. Continue to make yourself remarked by the faithful fulfillment of the duties of your state, and that for the honor and glory of our divine master, that master to whom all is good in us is alone owing. You see, I write to you as a father, which is the proof of my affection for you. Mm, great counsel. Uh, and, you know, it, it's not just directed to those in the military, but to all of us who are facing peer group pressure. Um, you know, we have the woke thing happening. We have uh, some very politicized groups that um, are acting out of very opposed to our Catholic values. So, um this is good counsel for all of us and something that we need to consider you know, greatly this day. That there is a way to use your talents in the world and still be a Catholic. Right. Um, and never, never go away from God. Always God as your foundation and your purpose and your, your goal in life to be with yeah. God. 
Um, he always tried to impress upon his officers a love of the service, especially when he found them, you know, <laughs> feeling disgruntled either from the injustice of men or from the misfortunes of the times. Right. Um, in one of his letters, he wrote, do try and accept generously the little crosses which God sends to you. It would be too easy for Christians to have a life in conformity to their tastes. That has never been my fate, I assure you. Bless and thank God if your feet have not been too cruelly wounded by the thorns of the road. But even if it were otherwise, one must go on all the same, for to persevere bravely is a duty. What do you mean by thinking of sending in your resignation by the advice of your wife? If I dared say so, I would tell you that in an affair of that sort, she has not the grace to guide her. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I mean, that's great that she's, you know, supporting him. Hey, we'll find some other way for you to earn a living. But at the same time, she, her perspective would not be the same as the general. She would be looking at it as the nurturing wife who doesn't want him in this stressful situation. But, you know, the general has a different perspective on it because he has been there. And so he would know how to give um, the professional insight into the situation. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it helps you to really think about what is your call? I mean, he uses the duty, persevere, to persevere bravely is a duty. Yes. So uh, what is our duty? What is our call? Our call to fidelity. Um, we've got to answer the call. Um, and God puts us in different circumstances, in different careers, in different cultures, different places of time. And, you know, but we all have a purpose. It's that universal call to holiness, right? Right. Right. And when what I like about the um, the book that the French book published in 2012 is how it it zeroes in on the fact that it's it's a Carmelite thing. It, it said this is a quote from this book. Most striking to us in this story of a soul is the Carmelite spirituality that inhabits this soul. Yeah. So yes. Um, that kind of goes back to um, in the first in this series, when we were talking about um, the three points, uh, kind of, can we revisit that? Do you remember um, what those three points were um, that? Uh, we're saying, yes, that your duty to God is first, your prayer okay. life is essential, and that you must live the faith unapologetically. Yes, and the general does that marvelously, right? Exactly. I'm so glad that you have um, taken the time to to delve into his life for us and and to point out aspects of his life that are timeless. You know how um, we too can respond like the general in these situations that are tough. I mean, for him, uh, very physically. Uh, politically, socially, uh, trying. And I think we all can say that we have social and political trying times today, right? So, all right. Well, um, with that, I, uh, unless there's anything else, did you have anything else that you wanted to add or should we go on to our closing prayer? I think we can go into the closing prayer. I still think that we should probably someday redo those ones that got lost because we can we can still tell more stories about this man. And <laughs> since we yeah. so 
firmly want stories spread. <laughs> after having read that book, I, I agree with you totally. And uh, so let's just make that a, a plan of action right. uh, that we do uh, some more on the general. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Colleen, for all that you've uh, given us and, and highlighted for us that uh, can benefit us in our in our lives. And so um, I have this. Um, it's what I call the battlefield prayer of the general. Uh, now, remember, he he was a, a third order Carmelite. Um, so uh, and and in the military. But, you know, we're all in the military. We're in God's army. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we are church militant <laughs> yes exactly good point all right well let's let's close with this prayer then <clears throat> in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen he came to the battlefield armed for the fight thy adorable heart on our stand overshadowed our battalion lord the soil of france has drunk our blood and now knowest how we have sacrificed our lives for our country. Many of our comrades have died. Thou hast called them to thyself, for they were ripe for heaven. But we remain, and we know not the fate which is reserved for us. Grant, O Lord, that the lives thou hast preserved may be henceforth entirely consecrated to thy service. We bear on our breasts the image of thy sacred heart. Grant that our own hearts may be a still more faithful image of thee and make us worthy of the title of Christian soldiers. Grant that we may be submissive to our leaders, charitable to our neighbors, severe towards ourselves, devoted to our duties and ready for every sacrifice. Make us pure in body and in soul. And however eager we may be in the fight, grant that we may be tender and compassionate towards the wounded. O oh Jesus, in all our dangers and sufferings, it is from thy divine heart that we seek our most powerful help. Thou wilt be our refuge when all human aids fail us and our last sigh will be an act of hope in thy divine mercy. And you, O oh blessed Mary, whom we have chosen for our mother, to you also we must bear witness. Our battlefields have seen the long procession of mourning wives, mothers, and sisters, speaking for their dear ones who had fallen and recognizing your sons by their scapulars. Be our protectress and obtain for us the grace to be tenderly united to you in the sacred heart of your divine son for life and death in time and in eternity. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Well, thank you again, Colleen. So glad to have you. Thank you for bringing me on. All right, I look forward to having more Carmelite conversations with you. And I thank our listeners for tuning in. Uh, again, this has been a series that we began on um, courage in the face of opposition and what the Carmelites can teach us about living counterculturally. Thank you again, Colleen. And uh, again, uh, we hope to continue some more discussion on some of our Carmelites on this topic, as well as going to greater depth in the future on the general. So,
thanks again and God bless you all. Bye-bye.